looking back on everything, I think the most promising or fulfilling or successful things happen from just an authentic place without some grand vision or some like grand aspiration of becoming something massive. I just wanted to show my nephew that astronauts could be black. And the only way I could do that was on a canvas. So from the age of three, my guest today, Micah Johnson, he knew that he wanted to be a professional baseball player when he grew up. And from that moment, he literally lived baseball 24-7 every moment of his waking hours. And in 2012, as a young adult, his dreams came true when the Chicago White Sox drafted him. But what Micah didn't know was that a truer calling in life was just getting started. A couple years later, he was traded to the LA Dodgers, and Micah, almost on a lark, discovered painting, something that had never been any part of his life. Art was just not a part of his world. He was all baseball all the time. But something about it, it called to him in a way he never saw coming. And now, while his full-time job was pro baseball, drawing and painting and creating art, it became a new, increasingly consuming passion. But it was a single moment when his young nephew came to him and asked him whether black people could be astronauts that changed everything. In response, Micah painted this moving depiction of a young, confident black boy in an oversized astronaut helmet, ready for adventure as a way to not just answer yes, but create a powerful visual depiction of courage and possibility. At around the same time, Micah was feeling called to bring his baseball career to a close and go all in on this new passion around art. But no longer a a novelty as a pro athlete slash painter, he found his art hard to sell. He was really struggling until everything came together when that character he'd painted for his nephew met this emerging world of NFTs, crypto art, Web3, and the power of digital aspirational movements. And he turned that painting into a character named Aku that then began to build a world and a community and an enterprise and a movement around it. And Micah's work has centered now around empowering young African-American kids to see the possible and dream without limitations. Micah began releasing NFTs in January of 2020. And by the way, we're going to talk about what that thing NFT is. So you can actually understand it. You've probably heard it floating around in the ether a lot lately. And in February 2021, Aku's message became a viral sensation and the first NFT ever option to become a major motion picture film. As we air this conversation, Micah is just coming off helming a 15,000 square foot immersive, multidisciplinary experience in Miami's Art Basel called Aku's World. We dive into all of this in today's conversation, along with a bit of a mini primer on these mysterious things called NFTs and crypto art and Web3, which has been creating quite a stir these days and becoming a growing fascination of mine as well. So excited to share this conversation with you. And a quick note before we dive in, So at the end of every episode, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but we actually recommend a similar episode. So if you love this episode, at the end, we're going to share another one that we're pretty sure you're going to love too. So be sure to listen for that. Okay, on to today's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I was trying to think of where I actually first heard about you and your work because it was not in the context of baseball. And I think well, that's always good. Yeah. I think you and I were actually on a clubhouse room in the early days of clubhouse when you were launching oh, yeah. a chapter, chapter one. and I, I, I wandered into that room Wow. and I was just kind of like a fly on the wall in that room. I was like, huh, this is really fascinating. And you were in an interesting way, sort of like my gateway drug to the world of NFTs and art and community and web 3.0. And uh, so it's, it's kind of like a, a, a fun full circle moment just to be able to hang out and have this conversation. You know, what's really cool about that is Aku from what I've you know gathered from a lot of people that have talked to me about it is was like with their first foray into NFTs too, like that clubhouse room. I've heard that. So by a lot of people who have built massive audiences and, identities in the, in the NFT space since then. So it's super cool to, to, to see that. Yeah, it's pretty neat, especially considering I don't spend a whole lot of time there anymore, but that just happened to be this one moment in time. Um, I want to take a step back in time though. And uh, because 
the vast majority of your life was not spent doing what you've been doing for the last five years or so. You were the kid who it sounds like from the earliest days caught the baseball bug and like became utterly obsessive about it. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Um, don't know where it came from. Don't know, you know, when I first picked up a, a baseball bat or a ball or anything like that. I just know that at an early age, all I watched was baseball on TV. All I wanted to do was play baseball. I played in the snow. It's hard to explain, but I was uh, I was absolutely obsessed with baseball my entire life. So it's kind of wild to see where I'm at now. Were you in a family where um, they looked at this obsession and created a sense of possibility around it and said, "Well, well, yeah, like this could happen." Yeah, there was never never a moment where it was a doubt. Of course, now externally, outside and in school, you know, they're always like, "You got to have a plan B and do all this." No, there was never a doubt. I am. Um, I would come home from school and my friends tell the stories all the time, but I would always come home. And even if they were with me, my parents would always hit me ground balls in the front yard pretty much like every day, probably. And so it was never down in my mind that I was going to play major league baseball. Like not a day went by. And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe I don't, I didn't play well today. So maybe, or, you know, I'm sitting the bench and I'm like, oh, I don't know. It was never a doubt. Yeah. Tell me about your folks. Cause I'm, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the family dynamic, especially when you've got a kid who's just so drawn to something at such a young age. Where, you know, from the outside looking in, from a parent looking at that kid, very often you're like, oh, how awesome is it that they've, they've found this thing that, and it's all they want to do. But at the same time, it happens to be a thing where if you, if you kind of plot it out and you look at like, well, what are the quote chances of making it? It's slim to none. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about your, your folks. I'd love to know sort of like about their lens and like, you know, where they came from. Yeah. I mean, we, if Indiana folks, man, Midwest folks um, showed up to work every single day. You know, my dad worked every single day, bank, and my mom, she was uh, a nanny for most of our early life and watched over, We had I have two sisters, and she watched over two other kids, so it was like five kids she was watching every day, and she was hands-on every single day, playing baseball, anything, um, and then she became a teacher and showed up to work every single day to teach, and what's cool about it, them both were, no matter what Whenever I wanted to work or go to practice, and I was practicing all the time, you got to the level where I have, have to drive hours to go to practice to play. Um, they always made it work. Or, you know, I used to work on a farm in high school and my mom would take me, you know, five in the morning, come back, pick me up, take me to a baseball game, sit there, watch my baseball game, come home, cook, you know, do the whole thing. And what I learned, I think subconsciously, because it's something you don't see, you don't like notice as a kid, it's just like how much energy and work they put into like us and it was just it was just the same thing every day and so that work ethic kind of got got instilled in me where it's just you show up every day like whatever it is you're doing you just you just show up and you don't think anything about it and so i would say it's a blessing and a curse because all i know how to do is work so <laughs> like don't really know how to relax yeah i guess it's it, it is really interesting right because on the one hand if you're somebody who figures out how to turn that thing we call work into something, which is like an outgrowth of yeah. something you're truly passionate about, like something deeper inside of you, it can be really powerful. You get to spend your waking hours doing this thing. But at the same time, that same drive can lead to a level of obsession, which literally rises to a level of compulsion, which makes it hard to pull out of that, that exact same thing. So even if you love it, 100%. it's like, but, but you probably also love life outside of that and friends and family. And that can take a hit. You know, I was looking at, we got married recently and I was looking at the, like the wedding list and I was like, I don't, I don't have too many friends. Um, because <laughs> I think, 
you know, I was so hyper-focused on baseball for so long. And so like those parties in high school or the things in high school that other kids and normal kids were doing, I wasn't doing. And, and then in college, and I was just so hyper-focused. And then when I got into art and what I'm doing now, um, that work ethic carried over. There wasn't really a transition period where I got to say, okay, let's go to a bar tonight or let's all go hang out at this house. I never, like that, that didn't exist for me. It doesn't exist for me. Cause I, I jumped right into something that was full throttle again, that required full attention. And so I think it's very important. Like when, in order to be successful, there's sacrifices. Um, in order to reach the top, there's all, there's major sacrifices. And what I'm learning now, like literally in the last couple of weeks is, you know, I'm tired and, and I've been going at this, I was calculating like 20 months straight, pretty much seven days a week, no days off, no vacation, like working on what I'm doing now. And I started thinking, I was like, okay, that, that wasn't just 20 months of my life. I did this, I did this for like 20 years before this. And so I kind of like the last couple of weeks was thinking about like trying to figure out how to get out of it. Cause once I'm in it, I'm in it. Like I'm up at yeah, today, I was in the studio at five in the morning. I'm trying to figure out that better balance. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Especially because I know that you know, you know you're a dad now to a, a young kid, and um, you know, so it's, it, I think you start to think that changes the way you think about these things, also, right? Because it's not just about the decisions that you're making and how it's affecting your life, but now it's affecting like your partner's life. It's affecting your kid's life, and it's also once your kids start to get a little bit older and they're looking to you to model the way to be in the world. It's like, huh, it doesn't matter what I say. They're going to watch the choices that I'm making. And I think it really starts to make you re-examine, like, is mm. this, is the, are the choices that I'm making and the way that I'm modeling my life? Like, is that the message that I want to send right. to my kid? I was literally just thinking about this. There's got to be an end goal. Like there's got to be some kind of number or metric or something that I can say, okay, I'm, I'm done. Right. Otherwise, I'm not going to get pulled out of this. Uh, but, you know, I look back and my daughter's too. Most of her life, she's seen me. She's seen me working and it's been, you know, come back home. And probably still working or, you know, very brief moments here and there. And it sucks because like you, you, you to your point, like, you know, the, you don't get these moments back. And these are very formative years in her life. And it's a kind of a battle, a battle because I'm like, okay, I want her to see her. I want her to see me working at this rate because this is what it takes to like be successful. But at the same time, I think it's okay that everybody should have the pressure of it. Like you got to go build an empire. You got to go do the, be a small percentage of a person that does something. Right. And so it's very important as I think about it to start trying to understand ways to like show her other things, other sides of life. And it's not all about working to get to this level. That's for me. It's, I, I love it but I don't want her to feel like she has to love it as well. Yeah, it's it's such a fine line because you want to show that, you know, you can devote yourself to a passion or something that gives you a deep sense of purpose and at the same time not lose yourself to it. And that, that is such a dance to do. I think mm -hmm. so many of us, you know, are doing that on a regular basis. And that to try and model that and translate that to somebody who's looking to you to decide how to live in the world is, is like a whole nother layer. So, I mean, for you, this... This level of devotion, this almost obsessive immersion in something in the early part of your life, it takes you deep into the world of baseball. You end up being one of those few people who actually realizes the dream. Like you end up getting drafted, you end up um, actually playing pro. And for, for those who don't know, sort of like the way that pro baseball works, also, it's, it's not like, you know, 
all of a sudden you, you get drafted and immediately you're like you're you know, like you're out on the field with like you know the 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 official team this is a years long process of working your way up through like all the different layers of teams that would eventually lead you to sort of like the main pro team so for you even when you get the nod this is still years of you grinding mm-hmm. just to show that you're worth it i think that i think that's a great point when I look back, there was never a metric in baseball. I reached the major leagues and it was like, okay, like you get drafted and it's like, great, you know, big party and all that. Then you're back on the grind trying to get to this next level. You get to the major leagues, you think you make it, but then it's like, no, you have to stay here. And it was, there's always like this, this hill to climb. Um, and so I kind of just carried that over into my life now. I think um, baseball is a sport that really prepares you if you really, you know, post baseball and you really want to go do something, it prepares you for life to really try to go for something again. That's kind of like, doesn't seem really possible because a, we're not afraid to fail. I think we all, every day we wake up and as a baseball player and you, you fail. Um, there's very few days where we go four for four. And so not only do we learn how to fail, but we learn how to like, just show up every day and grind. There's 162 games in 180 some days. Like you show up. And so Part of me thinks that like baseball was a really just a a segue into the longer part of my life, kind of like a the foundational building block. Um, I was obsessed with it, loved it, of course, but I feel like the, you know the second part of my life is a lot more fulfilling and honestly has a lot more potential. And baseball is just kind of setting me up for that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And your your point about sort of um, it trained you to sort of like iterate and fail. It's really interesting because if you think about the sport itself, right? And I'm, I'm not a hardcore athlete or a hardcore sports fan, but like I certainly grew up around baseball. Um, Long Island, by the way, Mets yeah, yeah, yeah. back in the day when they were like, yeah, like incredible. Um, but um, you, you literally like it's a really stats heavy pursuit. So like you take the average, mm. like a batting average and like a really, 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 really good hitter is failing like 60 to 70% of their time. And yet that's considered like you're at the top of the game. And it's such a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah, a thousand percent. It, I used to sit in the middle of the field and literally throughout the whole season, didn't matter if we were, I had 500 at bat. I was doing math in my head constantly, like figuring out what my batting average is. And I got to get a hit this at bat and my average will do, jump up here. It's a constantly, it's a stat heavy uh, a game for a hundred percent. But um, I mean, nowadays, if you, you know, you're going to fail 75, you know, percent of the time you still have a hall of fame career. And so it's a game of failure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting, right? Cause if you take that into almost any other domain, like if you take it into the world of business and you're like, Hey, you're going to work in a big corporation and you're going to fail 75% of the time. And that would put you literally at the top of the industry. People kind of their head spin. If you sort of mm-hmm. try and transpose that into other domains and yet that's exactly what allows you to feel like nobody just, it's just that nobody measures it in all these other domains. You know, yeah. nobody says, okay, like I actually tried 500 times and I completely failed 350 to 400 of those. And that's what let me get to the 50 to a hundred that let me rise to the top of an industry. We don't measure that. Like there's no sort of objective at bats right. in all these other domains in a way that there is in, in sport, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. I think, that's kind of like the, the hardest thing for me is when I talk, people ask me, you know, you have, you had an amazing life. You, you know, did this and now you're doing this and then you're doing that. Like, do you have any advice on like, and I don't ever feel adequate enough to like offer advice because how can I tell somebody who didn't have, you know, 20 years of training how to fail 
or, or how to risk something, you know, not be afraid to risk something. I don't, I, I don't, I don't have that kind of experience. So a lot of times like I get kind of like embarrassed a little bit. Cause I, I don't, I grew up failing, like literally since I was a kid, you know, I, I made myself susceptible to failing every single day. And so like when I go and do something now and do something that seems you kind of, you know, might be ridiculous or like, no way, and that's not possible or, or let's do something big now, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. Forget the models, forget the, the metrics. Like, let's just go try this. My gut's telling me that's something I've had 20 years of training. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting also, right? Because so many people talk about this phenomenon of perfectionism these days and how much, mm. and like the weight of perfectionism and the impossibility of ever attaining this standard. And yet so many people try and live into it and the level of of anxiety and obsession and uh, depression and literally rising to level of mental illness that leads to, and it's sort of like you had this model that said like, that's not actually in the equation. It's more about craft. Like I'm just going to keep stepping up and knowing that a whole bunch of times it's not going to work, but it's the process over time that gets you to just, it's, it's more about process than it is sort of like this perfect outcome. You have to love the process. I think the most successful people in this world, and it doesn't have to be monetary success, but like, just like are obsessed with the process, but the results never matter. Like you could have the biggest win and it's just, that's cool. You know, or, you know, the biggest loss. And it's like, that's cool. Like you got to be so hyper obsessed with literally the, the process because I think the results are fleeting, you know, like in the world I'm in now, you know, releasing NFTs, for example, you could have something not go your way and it's out of your control. Like, and a, a big win, like, you know, people could, there could be a power outage or there could be the internet goes down or credit cards fail or crypto doesn't get trade, like trans. There's so many things that are out of your control. So like the process is always, you know, really the most enjoyable part for everything I've done. I've always enjoyed practice in baseball. I've always, I always enjoyed practice more. And it's kind of like what kind of got me into painting and really like obsessed with painting was painting was a tangible thing that really, you could really measure the process. I could teach you to, you know, you never painted before, you'll be able to see yourself get better over a period of time. And that's kind of like, you know, the thing, things I kind of gravitate towards is just seeing things that can, you really can measure progress. Yeah. No, I love that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So let's fill in a little bit of the gaps here. You end up, so you end up playing for the White Sox. A little bit into that, you end up getting traded over to the Dodgers, um, which is a very different culture. You know, I sort of like, it's a team where they're sort of like expected, okay, like the, you know, like everyone in there is like, we're going to win. And shortly, like after arriving there, you know, it seems like this, the seed for you starting to paint, it's not like you close the door on baseball and you're like, then what am I going to do with my life? Let me try painting. The seed for painting for you literally gets planted while you're playing pro ball. So walk me through that story a little bit. Yeah, I mean, when I got dra- I got drafted by the White Sox in 2012 and, and made my debut with them at 15. So that was the only organization I knew. You know, I came up a uh, pretty like, highly touted prospect and, and, and that whole thing. So I had a close-knit community family there. And they called me over the winter and, and they said, you got traded. And I was kind of devastated. Although, you know, going to L.A., I was like, this is great. But you're right. At the time, L.A. was loaded with superstars. And, and, and it was superstars that I looked up to growing up. Like, I watched playing. And I was like, wow, you know. And so I was just excited about it. And I got to L.A. in spring training. I was just looking at all the names in, on the, in the locker room. Like, this is absolutely mind-blowing. I probably don't belong here. Um, like, <laughs> I wonder how long I'll be here. But I'm going to enjoy this while I am. And uh, Dave Roberts was also the new manager at the time. And he's a player's, you know, first manager. And he, he always did this thing where he brought the new guys up to introduce themselves. And he called me up towards the end of this, end of this. And so I got to get to kind of the gist of what was going on. And these guys would introduce themselves, most of them pretty nervous, you know, looking at Clay Kershaw and Carl Crawford and Chase Utley and, and everybody was pretty nervous. And I, uh, he, he would ask them what they like to do. 
um, and they would say maybe like fishing. And so he would pair them with one of these superstars and go fishing and kind of create some team bonding. Well, he finally calls me up and uh, I played piano growing up and I didn't want to say piano because I had a feeling this dude would wheel a piano in there or something. I knew actually there was, I think there was a piano in there. And so I, right before spring training, I did a paint and sip class. And uh, first thing that popped in my head was like, I like to paint. I was like, this is a safe bet. Like there's maybe he'll ask me to show, show him a picture. And I'll just show him that or something like that. He's like, great. You got to do a painting of Maury Wills and present it to the team by spring, by the end of spring training. And so I go to Walmart and get like the, the wall, you know, watercolor painting stuff and spend, spend the rest of spring training working on that. I, I practice, play, go home, paint. Um, I presented it to the team at the end of spring training. It was not good. And, um, a couple of guys came up to me, some of these guys I was telling you about, like, you know, I really idolized. And they were like, hey, man, like, you got a lot of talent. Like, this is really impressive. And, like, that just stuck with me. And that, that kind of lit the fire. And I was like, okay, like, I guess I, I'm good at painting, so I'm going to try painting. And, and just kept painting the rest of the year, taking canvases on the road with me, and just became obsessed with it. And uh, it was really, looking back on it, that was, like, the pivotal moment in my life. Like, those guys had, you know, Two options. They could have just gone out to practice, kept it moving, put the painting back in, and 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 no harm, no foul. Like it wasn't a good painting, but like for them to come up to you know me and show you know you know verbal support of you know something that they could clearly saw that I put a lot of work in, that meant the world to me. Um, and it's just like it stuck with me the power of encouragement uh, and words, both positive and negative. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I'm I'm kind of fascinated with this notion of sliding doors and also mentors or like the mentor who appears out of nowhere, but not necessarily the mentor, also sometimes the champion who just acknowledges you. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if in that moment you'd showed the painting and they're like, you know, like took the opposite approach and they're like, ah, funny, okay. like you think you're an artist, like, but this is terrible. <laughs> well, that's probably, the, that's the comfortable route for a lot of people is you uh, see, you know, and I think that's, well, you see a lot on social media where a lot of people get, you know, social media is great, but also very, very harmful uh, for kids and, and, and even adults like you who are trying something and, and getting their you know, their passions out into the world. They could have easily said you're trash and I'm I'm trash. I will never paint again. And, and that's and my life would look completely different than it does now. <laughs> yeah. No chance I would have kept painting. Yeah, it's it's wild. I'm I'm so fascinated by the moments like those. So this becomes a new obsession for you. Um, not at the cost of baseball, but like a, a dual obsession. I'm wondering also, you know, from the outside looking in, as much as you love this sport that you've literally been training for since, you know, like it's, it's your earliest memories, when you get to the level that you were playing at, at the team that you were playing at, I would have to imagine there's also a certain amount of stress and expectation um, mm -hmm. that gets built into that. How was your state of mind during that window of time? And do you feel like if you were feeling the pressure, the stress, the anxiety in any way, do you feel like painting in some way helped you through that? Yeah. So I think God has some obviously different plans for my life because right when I discovered painting and really got into to painting, my career was on the other end, and which, which takes a toll on you mentally because you're used to playing every day and being you know, paraded around as this guy who's here, he's, gonna, he's the super, he's the next, you know, future second baseman of the White Sox. Now you're back to, well, I'm, I'm about to go back to AAA. I'm back in AAA, uh, up and down. And so that takes a toll on you mentally. And a lot of the time I just spent painting. And so I think, you know, by discovering that it was like really my transition out, you know, out of baseball, preparing for what was to come. And I remember like in 2018, when I retired, 
that spring training, I was like, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is facts or science or anything like that, but I've, I've heard that men like in their later twenties, that's when like some kind of like mental um, health issues might, might arise. And so that year I was really, you know, depressed, but also going through these different phases where I, I would, I would never sleep, but I, I had a full energy and just like constantly going, or then I'd be, you know, it was constantly influxes. And so I saw a doctor um, and, and put me on, on, on medicine and that was like, that was the end of it. Once I got on the medicine, I was off, I was done with baseball and really just painting was the only thing that like I could do at that point. Cause it was just me. Like I didn't have to like talk to anybody. There was no pressure of like selling paintings. There was no pressure of like performing well, getting worrying about like, if I'm getting, I was just, I would just paint in my garage. Yeah. I mean, when you say like you, you, once you're on medicine, you realize you were done with baseball. Um, like what, what was it? I mean, what, because this is literally something where it wasn't just something you did. It was an identity level thing for you, for your entire life up until that moment. And yes, you were like, you know, from, you could say you were struggling or, but for you to walk away from that, you know, it's not just you walking away from something that you quote do, it's you walking away from something that you quote are. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm curious what happens you know, was it just a gradual evolution? Was it, was there a moment where you're just like, I am done? Was it some, something? Yeah. I mean, they put me on lithium and I, I don't, lithium has these awful side effects where like, you just kind of like, I was just numb to the world. I was just walking around a world when there was nothing was, nothing mattered to me. And so when I decided to, I didn't decide really to walk away from baseball. Like I was just on this medicine and baseball season ended. I never called anybody back. Like, that was it. Like, it was just like, I, there was no like, Hey, I'm done. Or I called my you know agent. I said, I'm done. Just never called anybody back. Never showed up the next, you know, the whole routine I had of like, here, you're going to, I'm going to spring training, picking my house. Like I just didn't do it. Didn't work out. Like it was just done. And so for a lot of the, for a lot of years after that, I just kept working on other things, painting to keep my mind off of it. So I never, like, I should kind of like bury those emotions of like, you know, baseball is no longer, or even thinking about like getting angry that I was put on this medicine and, you know, I was still young, had a great career ahead of me, still played incredibly well. And so I kind of buried those emotions behind work and focus on other things and it never really dealt with that aspect of like, baseball's gone now. Yeah. Do you feel like there was a moment where it did come back to the surface and you kind of said, okay, it's, it's time to actually deal with this? Or do you feel like you just sort of like you went headlong into this next pursuit and that became the consuming thing for you? I think I bury, I bury a lot of this, a lot of my emotion, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there hasn't been a moment where I've thought about it. I don't watch baseball games. But I don't, I don't know anything about baseball anymore. Like I don't, I don't know who's doing well, nothing. And so I just work, um, and focus on that and just keep bearing it. And I, I know that probably like I should address it at some point, but becoming more aware that I did, I am, I am suppressing a lot of those feelings of resentment for even being on, you know, put on that medicine and, and resentment for, you know, a promising career. I thought I still had, you know, just kind of like being done. Yeah. And at the same time you channeled all this energy into something which is, which has become this incredibly powerful channel of expression for you, you know, so you start, you know, what starts as this thing that you're doing on the side while you're playing and then becomes the thing that you step into as you close the door on baseball, that same 
deep, deep level of just like, I am 100% all in on this, takes you from being somebody who had never painted, not identified as an artist, to in an astonishingly fast period of time, going through that same process you described in baseball, which is like, I'm just going to, how many, how many, like, instead of at bats, it's like at canvases, how many at canvases can I like put down like over and over and over and over and over obsessively mm -hmm. developing the craft in a ridiculously short period of time, you start to produce work that is really stunning. But I guess there was a moment where you realize, okay, so people, when you were a baseball player who was painting, there's a bit of a novelty around that. And people are like, yes, I'm into this work. Exactly right. But when you're now, quote, just an artist, your ability to then actually gain traction and yep. potentially turn this into a living or sell it, yep. it's a whole different equation at that point. Super easy to sell art as a, or, you know, as a, the baseball player who paints, you know, but once that jersey came off, there was, nobody was knocking on the, on the door and, and there was really nothing. From 2018 to 2000 and early 2020, so from, from September 2018 to early 2020, I was in my garage painting, not selling anything. Going from like, you know, I did a solo show, I mean, I had a solo show in Atlanta and, and then a show at Dodger Stadium with Shelby and Sandy. And um, going from that to literally nobody buying anything. And um, there were some hard moments there because like, you know, I, uh, again, I left baseball, didn't have a chance to, you know, get a job anywhere. I didn't never had a job. I, I, art was what I was doing. and I was dedicated to that. And so I just kept painting every day and practicing and waiting for that, my, you know, me to discover my style, me to discover what I wanted to convey to the world. It all works out uh, in the end, I believe, where like you'll have that moment, you can't force it. But the one, the most, the most frustrating thing for me this whole, that whole time was not being able to ever come up with like a cohesive style or a cohesive message. Because I think to be a successful artist or creative, you need to have a body that like people are like, oh, okay, that's so-and-so's work or, you know, I just was just painting random things and that was incredibly frustrating, you know, and then 2020, that's when everything took off. Yeah. So what happens? Well, what happened was I really think God got these crazy plans for my life. I don't know what's going to happen, but early 2020, I discovered, well, late 2019, early 2020, I discovered NFTs and crypto and digital art. Congruently, I discovered that I love charcoal and was making some, some of my favorite pieces with charcoal and at the same time that was happening, my nephew asked if astronauts could be black. And so all those three things happened. I was like, okay, I'm going to paint my you know, nephew. I built these canvases, started painting him in astronaut helmets and just showing him on these large scale canvases. And I was like, this is really cool. And I was able to see like his reaction and, and it was really inspiring. I felt incredibly fulfilled like by just seeing his reaction. And discovered digital art and NFTs because I knew I, you know, I didn't have any galleries or I didn't have anybody buying my art. So what if I could maybe, you know, animate some of these paintings and sell them as NFTs and kind of like leverage that, you know, that I was a professional baseball player and now I'm doing NFTs, which at that time was like nobody heard about. Like it was very few articles about it. And so I did that and had an incredible collectors, you know, buy them, I think for first like 900 bucks and 900 bucks. And like, this is incredible. I was so happy. Because like there's money I haven't made in over a year and a half. And so all those things just hit at once. And when they all hit, I just, I didn't stop. Like, like this is it. Like, I'm going to, I'm just going to go. And really dug into NFTs, really dug into the art, reached out to gallery. I just went all in. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because it's the confluence of these things. You know, you've got your nephew basically asking you this this question, which on the surface is like a simple question, but underneath it, it's got layers and layers and layers to deconstruct. And like, in you know, in order to essentially show him that, well, yeah, like this is, you can dream, this is possible. You create, like you basically take him and you create, you know, um, this image of an astronaut. And it's not just, you know, this is not just a piece of art. This is a manifesto effectively. You know, this is something which is designed to, to say like, this is possible, you know, like just because you haven't seen this before, you know, like this is possible. And it's interesting because I thought about sort of like you and the work in that moment and, you know, had you painted anything else or, or mm-hmm. like done a charcoal illustration of anything else and then offered it up in the, in the digital world, you know, probably it would have been a very different reaction, but there was something so powerful about the fact that this wasn't just you, a former baseball player who's been hiding away in the garage for two years, like deepening into the craft and then saying, look at my work. It was that the work was representing something so much bigger on so many different levels. Did, I mean, from the outside looking in, that's what it feels like. Do you feel like from the inside looking out, that was like what you were experiencing? I think looking back on everything, I think the most promising or fulfilling or successful, you know, things happen from just an authentic place without some grand vision or some like grand aspiration of becoming something massive. I just wanted to show my nephew that, you know, astronauts could be black. And the only way I could do that was on a canvas. There was nothing beyond that. Like there was no like, I'm going to paint this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take this painting, go take it to a gallery, go create Aku, go create this iconic IP, none none of that. It was just literally like focused on the moment. This is an audience of one. Releasing it as an NFT was just, I knew I couldn't sell a painting. I needed to make money because I had, you know, my daughter was at like um, almost, you know, she was born that same year, earlier that year. So I needed to make money. And so just, you know, sold it as an NFT right? To an audience where there's no permission, there's no gatekeepers. I had freedom to do that. I didn't have to ask permission. And that was it. And then like, kind of just like over time, like just focusing on that, you know, no bigger vision on that, just intentionality on the mission, you know, empowering my nephew. Okay, cool. Like making money to buy diapers. Okay, cool. Okay. Then that summer, 2020, reached out to a gallery that had called me years ago when they saw me in LA, asked if I had works, reached out to them, cold called them, email. Hey, I got some cool works I'm working on, but they're really impactful. Like, and they, they really, I really care about these. I'm not the best painter. I'm not going to argue that. I'm, I don't, I'm still learning, but like the message behind these, like they're really kind of resonating on, on and, and they loved it. And they gave me a solo show shortly after that. Did incredible, like sold out really quickly and I just kept going. I just kept building on those, building on those and thinking of new ways to build the audience around this message, like pure and simple. Yeah. And I want to talk about what that's built into now because it's pretty stunning. But um, I think we probably have to spend a couple of minutes defining something and that's a NFT. So, <laughs> you know, you, you have been deep, deep, deep into this world. I'm stepping deeper into this world. I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by it. But for those who have no idea what we're talking about, I'm sure you've been asked so many times at this point, sort of like, like, 
what are, what are you actually talking about when you're talking about an NFT? How do you describe it for folks? Uh, NFT, so non-fungible token, is a token on the blockchain that proves authenticity and ownership over a, a digital asset. And what this token contains is information that points to a digital asset. And what we're talking about in this instance is digital art or, or, or an image. Prior to NFTs, there was no way to really prove ownership over an, an image or prove authenticity over a digital image. It just wasn't possible. And so come along and, and now NFTs allow digital items and digital assets to have not only ownership and authenticity, but value because of that authenticity and be able to prove ownership. And so at a high level, that's what an NFT is. At a really more granular level, what NFTs really unlock is the potential for creators to distribute their IP or creations or messages or stories to a permissionless infrastructure that has an audience base. And because that audience base, when they buy a NFT, are almost in the way investing in that artist because they can now share a common interest in the value of that asset going up, right? Because there's secondary market, you can now trade these digital assets for money. And so you create this collective alignment with early supporters and creators that in a way never existed before. Because also a thing to note about NFTs is there's secondary royalties that go to the creator. So every time it resells, 10% go back to the creator. So if you think about like my paintings, for instance, you know, have a solo exhibition and it sells out. Well, if those go to sell and, and I continue to produce good work and they go sell at auction or something like that, I don't get any, you know, there's no benefit to me. But what NFTs really do is create this alignment with audience and creator that really allows a much more rapid audience base to grow around an idea or a creation. Yeah, no, I love that. And I'm fascinated by this concept on so many levels. Like, I look at it, my brain translates it as, you know, I think a lot of people can wrap their head around, okay, so let's say an illustrator creates sort of like an original illustration, and then they decide to issue a series of like 500 signed limited editions of that and they get printed by a printer but they've got the little like you know like one out of 500 mm -hmm. in the signature on the bottom i think everyone can kind of wrap their head around that and see well there's value in having like number five out of 500 right but when in what we're talking about effectively it's like the digital version of that it's being able to release those instead of you know uh digitally printed versions of the original that are signed and hand lettered these are this it's a hundred percent digital like these exist in the digital domain, but you, you have that same pedigree, like that same provenance mm -hmm. that you would have with like a signed limited edition. But what you're talking about, which I think is like where things get really fascinating for me is this notion that, you know, once the artist issues the 500 limited edition copies, if those get resold a hundred times in the market over the next 10 years, the artist doesn't participate in any of that as the value of the work goes up. But with the NFTs, with the like the smart contracts and the way it exists in the digital world, like every time this thing gets resold, you get a percentage in perpetuity. So if 10 years later, you're super famous and your body of work has gone up in value dramatically, as the creator, you keep participating in that. And that is a mind-blowing change 
in the equation of how artists can actually continue to create potentially generational or multi-generational wealth from the work that they're doing. Yeah. So it's, I really call it the digital renaissance where now there's a, this is a really a very rare moment in history where creators can really build enterprise value around the things that they're creating. If you think back on history, like very few people were able to accomplish that, you know, Walt Disney, George Lucas, you know, like Robert Kirkman, like those type of people, every time something like that happens, the door closes behind them. And so, you know, thinking about how can a creator build enterprise value in a traditional sense, it's very difficult because every time, you know, a creator produces work, whether you're a writer or an illustrator or a 3D artist, you are basically working for a fee because you need the audience base. You need the distributors. And those distributors are the gatekeepers to building that audience base. And so you're constantly working for a fee. It's very difficult to retain ownership over your IP if you want to reach a larger audience. Now, art is obviously different, but thinking about like creators in general, IP creators and you know th things like that, if you, you know, a Mickey Mouse type, it's very difficult to retain ownership anymore in today's society. Web3 kind of like flips that on its head and says, well, you know, we are the audience. You have a direct line with the audience. But also like the most powerful thing about that is because these NFTs are digital assets that can be traded and can accure value, the value is shared between the creator and the audience. And both are aligned to drive the value of the thing they believe in up. And so you not only have an audience, but you are building an audience that is motivated to go to tell someone else to buy the thing that they bought because they want to continue to drive value to that. And so it's a really powerful moment in history for creators to really, really retain the, the ownership over their, their IP. Yeah. I mean, if you really think it through, right, you can, there's this potential to completely disrupt the way that art media content is created, is distributed, is purchased, is evangelized. And um, like you said, the notion of actually being able to create something on the level of an enterprise is pretty powerful and unique in this moment in time. And you, you referenced this notion of, of the community being a part of it, you know, and um, it feels like that's the key, you know, it's... Mm -hmm you are going direct to the people who would love your work. Like you're bypassing the studio system. You're bypassing the, the recording industry. You're bypassing the gallery system. And it essentially becomes this direct relationship. And like you said, there are markets where these things, you, you can easily trade back and forth. A thousand percent. Another important part of this too, is it doesn't require money. It doesn't no. require... If you're, if you're a designer, right, and you don't have the money for the infrastructure or the fulfillment or the product, like it costs money to like get your designs out into the world. But if you think about like video games and digital wearables, like anybody with, you know, an iPad can create a design for a wearable, right? Web3 really enables, empowers small creators to really like get their work out into the world. And not without without much risk, without much, you know, capital behind them needed. And so when you think about when I say like you can build enterprise value around creators, it's like it's because there's not much capital needed to get started 
And you just need one person to believe in you to buy that thing, to go tell someone else, you know, to go buy your thing. And I've seen that so many times. I think one of the first people to buy my work is an incredible person in the, in the crypto space and NFT space. One of the, bought my first NFT. Well, then he told, you know, go, he told his friends and his friends and his, his colleagues and other people in the space and kind of just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's what's really, you know, the unlock of, of this whole movement that's happening. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So let's actually use you, what you've been doing as an example. So if, if like our listeners are kind of like following along, but let's give them something concrete because I think what you're building right now is just a really powerful, clean example of what we're talking about. Like you start out with literally a painting to show your four-year-old nephew mm. that like this thing is possible. It's really powerful. On the one hand, you bring it to traditional galleries and like people saying yes to it, but then you you create a digital version of it. You offer it as an NFT and this seeds an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. From that moment, you then begin to build something astonishing. So walk me through what, you're, what you've been building from that initial seed, because it's pretty yep. incredible. Yeah. So the initial seed, obviously the, the paint, the first painting of, of, you know, my nephew took that to the galleries, you know, traditional route, got, got traction. But what I wanted to really do was reach a broader audience. One of one paintings on a collector's wall, kind of like that's where my paintings just went. There, there was no other way to reach a broader audience. And so came up with a character I call I named Aku, which is a digital, you know, character, a black astronaut kid who's also a digital explorer, you know, oversized helmet, very confident kid though, very confident. And what I realized was I didn't know anything about TV or film. I didn't know anything about comic books and how to get it distributed. I did know that I could release it as an NFT. And so that's a, that's the one distribution outlet I knew that I could release it, be able to see if people even liked it. 
without any capital needed and to see if it could even, you know, if it, if it had anything to it, there was anything to it before taking it to somewhere else. I didn't have a backstory to Aku. I didn't, you know, come up with a big script or a book or it's just a, this is a character. And came up with this idea to release 10 chapters, uh, like 10 episodes of Aku's origin story over time. And the, the reason for 10 was I figured 10 would be able to tell me, you know, or tell the world if it was good or not, or if it generated revenue, and then I can go maybe take it to make a TV series or something. And so I had this character, incredibly cool, like incredibly confident, you know, really never seen anything like this ever, you know, a black astronaut kid who, you know, wears cool clothes, but just has a big helmet and just confident and released him on February 21st of 2021. No expectations whatsoever. Like didn't think, okay, this is going to be massive or just here it is. Tell me what you think. And in the first minute, we released it. We did it in a timed window. You had seven minutes to buy chapter one of Aku. Here it is in the world. First time everybody's ever seen this guy. First minute did a, over a million dollars in, in sales of, of the first chapter. And I think end of the day, it was a seven minute window. I think it got close to $2 million that day. And it was like, you know, obviously incredible and like proved that like on day one but the coolest part about that whole you know moment was being able to see in real time people engaging with your ip your character your story people on twitter dming me or commenting and seeing the impact that they people had on seeing this one character with no story was incredible you know nobody talked about the money nobody talked about it was a time when everybody's talking about the sales prices and things were kind of like heating up not about the money. It was all about, I really resonate with this character. I really like, you know, connected with Aku. Like I see myself in Aku and and I felt, I felt, you know, messages. Like I felt like I had limits to my dreams and, and it was really inspiring. And so after chapter one, we optioned Aku for to become the first NFT to become a, a TV and film. But in that, you know, option, I was able to retain, you know, ownership over everything else, you know, books, video games, merchandise, everything. And I believe that's because of the leverage that was created using Web3. And that's when the unlock happens for building enterprise value around creators is building, having that leverage, you know, proved out after one of 10 chapters, there's real revenue generating potential here. I don't need to go give it all away now. And so... We did that, kept releasing these chapters and just the kind of momentum just kind of kept building and building. And a couple of weeks ago, we released chapter five. And now we're nine months, eight months into this. And in five minutes, surpassed chapter one and did $1.9 million in five minutes. And the value, the coolest part about this is the secondary market and the value of these chapters are just continuing to rise. And so when people are buying in for $1,000 for you know, on primary when the drop happens, some of these chapters are selling for $25,000 now, $30,000. And so that's the unlock. Now we have an audience base. We have revenue. We're generating revenue. We have leverage because now the audience is going to tell, is going to keep spreading on top of you. Like, hey, man, like you got to check this out. Like not only is this an amazing character, but like chapter I bought is now worth this amount. And so we just kind of build this kind of audience and leverage. And we haven't done anything wild. Like we haven't. You don't see Aku in a TV series. There's no, the backstory is still being told. Like there's not, you don't see Aku in, you know, a video game. It's just, you know, 
slow organic audience building. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful. It's like you you do that first chapter, and each one of these chapters, by the way, is like is a short animation. It's sort mm-hmm. of like which tells a little bit more of that origin story, and you release a certain number of them, and then it's like that fir- the very first one is proof of concept, and after that, sort of like it's game over. Now everybody else is sort of like, oh, I want to be. It's not even that I want to participate in the investment. It's I want to participate in this story. And not just the story of Aku, but the story of what's happening around this. That's exactly right. I want in on that. So yes, it could be really cool and and interesting and valuable investment. But even bigger, like I just, there's something happening here and I want to be a part of it. It's calling me on a deeper level. The coolest part about it and the coolest part about this whole thing is there's a Discord group of people um, who own the Aku chapters. And every morning we're in there, good morning, good morning, good morning, you know, and just hanging out. And you build a real kind of like family in, in there with them. And we're all a part of this together. That's the real, that's really the coolest part. Uh, being able to engage with them about the story, be able to talk about different ideas we have, to really bring them along and get their input and share, you know, my thoughts. And that's really the, I think, a, a, a massive piece of this is being able to get real-time feedback from these people who just want to be a part of this. And really the reward for them for being a part of this is, is endless because these are on, these are held in on Ethereum, right? Crypto wallets. What that means is these wallets are, are public. You can, they have public addresses that you, we, we see that you can, you can reward them. I can send them an NFT right now that says you have access to a, the, the movie premiere, or this is only you can watch this TV series. Like you can constantly reward them over time. And that's one thing some of these, you know, the biggest media companies or at Disney or, or whoever don't have, they don't have that direct connection to their audience base to maybe say, Hey, you watched the frozen movie tonight. Now you, I'm going to airdrop you a free frozen t-shirt, right? Like that doesn't exist. And so a lot of these people are, 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 they understand that they understand like, you know, this is a long process that, but we can always, communicate with them throughout this process. Yeah. I mean, it's also to a certain extent, they're saying yes to a piece of art that really resonates in a powerful way with them. They're saying yes to an investment, but they're also saying yes to a token that gives them access to a community that includes you. So they become effectively, you know, like co-creators along with you. But, but I wonder, you know, which is really powerful because there's a sense of belonging to something bigger too and access to you. I wonder if, do you ever feel a tension between the vision that you have in your head about where you want this thing to go and how much of a part the community plays or gets to play in determining the direction of that vision? Because I know a lot of times there can be this creative tension between what you feel like needs to happen to stay authentic to like what, what you're thinking about and what the community that feels empowered because they've made this possible wants to see happen? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when you're doing something creative and something that's really from the heart, there's really very few people that can steer that in the way that, you know, you really want it to go. More is not always better in a creative sense. But what we do, what we do have is that like relationship and then then other things that come along with beyond just creative. It's like, hey, what do you guys think about doing this kind of mechanic? Or what do you think about us doing a what's the name of this world, right? There's things that you can, you know, get real-time feedback. Like, you know, when we were building these chapters out, 
we were all sitting around and, and building them and I was able to hop in the discord and just like ask questions and things to get their thoughts and just like disengaging in a natural way. It doesn't need to be, you know, right. Where, where does Aku go next and type of thing. It's just like disengaging in real way and uh, authentic way that like is very helpful to kind of like get feedback from the, from the audience. It's invaluable. No, nah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, for those who don't know what discord is, by the way, it's simply, it's an, it's a, it's a digital platform for community where you can really just host really robust conversations. Um, yep. You know, as, as we start to zoom the lens out a little bit and start to come full circle in our conversation, like I wonder also if part of what's, what you think about when you're doing this in the larger context of artists of color and history uh, around people of color, around black people so much and so often there's this phenomenon of erasure. Like it gets left out of the history. And part of what you're doing, the way that you're doing it, especially sort of like in the digital domain, it's like you have a sense of agency over the way that history is written. And it, and there is this permanent record that you're creating. Do you think about it on sort of like that level in that context? Yeah, I mean, because the truth of the matter is, put it real bluntly, I got to do things 10 times bigger and 10 times faster and 10 times more grandiose than anybody else does that's the nature of it and so i look at it like okay i was put in this position in a new market that is generating billions of dollars per month with very few black faces in the in, in the crowd right and so that's why i you know when i think about aku and i think about the bigger vision the bigger vision is not aku becoming you know mickey mouse because I truly believe Aku will become Mickey Mouse, regardless of the, what I put behind it or anything like that. The bigger picture is Aku's now Mickey Mouse, but then he has other IP and other creators that you can then empower or finance or get their story told or bring those creators into the audience. That's the bigger picture. Because if I don't do it, and it's, I recognize the potential in Aku. If I just said, okay, I'm just going to focus on Aku and, and let's just go and we'll do some cool things and, you know, TV series film comes out and, and I'm set, then that's a waste. That's, that's a wasted opportunity that I don't think will ever come around again for other creators behind me. And so the vision of this is Aku is Mickey Mouse, but then but from the success of Aku, we can bring that back and redistribute and help these other creators just because of the nature of this market is hot. Every, all the money is flooding in and I don't want the black community to be the last ones at the party, right? Or black creators be the last ones in, in, in on this. And, and it's, it's too hard. It's, it's an uphill battle now to capture the value that's happening now. And so, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of the stuff we do, I think is incredible and far beyond what we probably have to do or some other people are doing in the space who are generating a bunch of money and, and all that. But as a black creator, we have to. Like we have to do things at a different level. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing is so powerful. And as we have this conversation, I'm not entirely sure when this is going to air, but in the not too distant future, you're also, you're sort of like, you're bringing this back out into the physical domain um, in Art Basel. Oh yeah. Describe this installation that that you're creating because it sounds kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it's, it, that's another example. Like we, you know, we had to do art. If we're going to do art, we do an Art Basel, a big, a big event, but you know, most people see Aku as NFT project and Aku's NFT and like, well, we're going to throw the biggest party and the biggest event we can at Art Basel. And so, yeah, we, we, we have a 30,000 square foot space in, in Wynwood 
that we turned into Aqua World, a massive interactive exhibit. FTX is the official sponsor of this. And it's absolutely incredible to see because it's hard to describe. There's a massive Aku helmet that you could walk into and ex experience what it's like to travel like Aku. You know, that's built. You have massive 200 foot long walls, 50 feet high walls that are projection maps of like 3D, 3D environments that are constantly changing. You have merch room where like the merch is holographic floating around. You have a, a room where you can mint yourself. You can create your, your own avatar that is placed into Aku's world and mint that as an NFT. We have Kalani performing on December 2nd, being opened by uh, with uh, AJ Mitchell opening, Khalik Mao opening. We have merch collaborators with Pusha T, Jerome Lamar, Aleli May. So like we said, if we're going to do this, we got to do it on a whole nother level. Yeah. I mean, that's the enterprise you were describing, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's still just the very beginning. This is still so early. Yeah. In this journey, I cannot wait to see like what this universe looks like five years from now. Yeah. You know, I, it's going to be un unreal. Um, good time, I think, for us to come full circle in our conversation. So having this, having this conversation um, about the evolution of work and art and impact and representation in this container of good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Define the balance. To be quite honest with you, define the balance. To be able to build something really special and that you're passionate about, but also still have time to uh, enjoy life, enjoy the uh, wind. Mm, thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Lisa Congdon about how she stepped into a career as an artist later in life. You'll find a link to Lisa's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Spark. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.